Good morning again. This year, it has been our goal to focus on the command that we have been given by God to love our neighbors. And we started out the year by spending a few weeks looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is Jesus' longest uh, single dwelling on that command. And then we went into the stories of Genesis around Abraham and Abraham's adventures and misadventures trying to love his neighbors as God had told him to do. And towards the end of that story, we talked about how the main obstacle that, that um, Abraham faced that defeated him time and time again was what I broadly call the fear of death, which is our fear of and being afraid of, of dying and also our, our, our it's basically selfishness. It's a need to put myself first that, that most often comes out when we're afraid that of, of our own demise or when we're afraid of, that we're not going to be meaningful or important or achieve our goals. And we talked about how that is what usually gets us, what gets us away from following God. And then, then we had to stop and talk about Easter because Easter was on this calendar, right? But what we found was that it fits perfectly into this story because ultimately it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides the solution to that problem that dogs every one of us. That what may set Christians apart is not that we are innately better than anyone or smarter than anyone or more apt to do right things than anyone, but really ultimately what is different is Jesus Christ. And the fact that we know there, that we can live eternally through him and be changed by him in the spirit of God and, and we can, uh, for us, the math changes because we're looking at eternal life, not just this fighting for scraps of joy in this one life. And it's interesting that, that that's where we ended up. I originally planned that our next series was going to be going through stories in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at Jesus loving his own neighbors, because Jesus moves to the town of Capernaum and lives there and interacts with a bunch of people who are effectively his neighbors. And we were going to do a study of that. And we're still going to do that in the future. But what I found was that this series and my own life experience have been leading me in a different direction. Because I don't know about you. I know, well, I know about a couple of you because you told me so. And I know about my own experience is that it's very uh, easy when we're talking about loving our neighbors to reach a point in your life where you say, how am I supposed to find the time, find the energy, find the resources, spiritual, mental, financial, otherwise, to love my neighbors when I can barely keep my own life together? We're like, I barely managed to get here this morning, and you're going to tell me that i got to worry about my neighbor's problems too? I can hardly hold my own life together. That, and that's, I mean, that's been a place that I've reached over the past couple of months, um, and I know a couple of you have talked to me about that feeling as well, of just feeling like I'm overwhelmed enough by my own life. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so, Im so important for us to go back to the Easter story and go back to Jesus, because Jesus makes some pretty startling promises about um, what he will do for those who choose to follow him. We focused on one of them last week. Jesus told Martha when she was mourning the death of her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He makes this promise, and we talked last week about how he gives, makes this promise of eternal life to those who follow him, and that changes the math because we don't have to worry about just getting every scrap of joy we can out of this existence before we die, but we actually have eternal joy on the balance, which allows us to love without fear, to forgive without limit, to give without hesitation, right? It changes the way we live. 
Jesus all, but Jesus makes more promises than that because even with that longer balance, that, that long, you know, even with the promise of eternal life, you may still say, in this moment, I just don't have what it takes to take on anymore, to do anymore. I'm not even sure I can get through this next moment of my own life. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus seems to promise that the people who follow him will be overflowing with life and with the resources they need to live, with the, with the spiritual and emotional and mental and uh, resources that they need to live. And then he also makes another interesting claim. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Eternal life is apparently something that we can have right now. It's not just a matter of an amount of time, but he says you can have eternal life right now. And ultimately, I think a, a, a verse that really ca well captures everything that, that I've just listed is this one. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus seems to make this promise over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John. You'll notice that those are all from John. He makes this promise that not only is he going to call, he's going to ask more of us, but he's going to supply more to us. He's going to give us life. He's going to make us the kind of people who can do what he's calling us to do. God, Jesus seems not to just be telling us to take on a longer list of things to do with the limited resources that we have, but he seems to be saying that as you follow me, I'm going to give you what you need to be the kind of people that I'm calling you to be. And honestly, <clears throat> that's what I need to hear. That's what I need to believe because I've, I've hit a couple of points in the last couple of months where I felt like I was just, I always feel like I'm laying track in front of the train, but man, it felt like the train got real close to the end of the tracks a couple of times, you know, just barely keeping it together. And, and, um, and, and if the gospel is for anyone, and if the gospel is for any part of our lives, it has to be for those types of moments, Right? It has to have an answer for those moments in our lives. The gospel can't just be for when life is easy and comfortable and plentiful. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend four weeks looking at different conversations that Jesus has in the gospel of John about life and about the promise that he makes to give us eternal life and what that actually means, what it means to have this life that flows like a spring, what it means to eat the bread of life, what it means to be connected to the vine. Uh, what, what is Jesus actually promising us? Because if we, if we misunderstand Jesus' promises and we just say, oh, he's promising to give me exactly what I'm hoping he'll give me, and those, those expectations are disappointed, then, then we aren't able to flourish in the way God calls us to. But if we understand the promise that Jesus is actually making, then we can receive what he's actually promising to give us. So today, we are going to be in the first really sustained conversation that Jesus has in the Gospel of John, perhaps the most famous conversation in the Bible, in John chapter 3, between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And we're going to start here because this conversation, it sets us up to understand, first of all, what eternal life is, at least the kind of the category, the, the, what Jesus generally means when he says eternal life, and it's actually also going to lay the foundation for us to be able to understand all the other conversations that will happen later. Because John is definitely a, a book of layers where each moment prepares you for the next one. So, today we're going to unpack the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Begin in John chapter 2, verse 23. 
Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs Jesus was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's actually an odd little exchange right there, isn't that? It's not entirely clear how those two statements go together. Right? Nicodemus says, hey, we, we see that you're doing these signs from God, so you must be a pretty great teacher. And Jesus says, no one, can tell, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. There's a little bit more going on in the conversation that we need to unpack to understand what this exchange really is. First of all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a Bible scholar. He is a part of a religious party that believes that if they can know the law of Moses well enough and follow it closely enough, they will find the life that God has promised them. This is how Jesus characterizes them later on in John chapter 5. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. They believe that the pattern of the law of Moses will give them the full life that God has planned for them. And if every Jew were to follow the law of Moses perfectly, the Messiah would return. And that, that, following that law would restore all of creation. So it's all about following the, right, following the right steps and following the law perfectly. But the thing is, there's a lot of interpretation required in the law. And so you can't just sit down and read the book. You have to interpret it. So you have to find the best interpreters. And so as a Pharisee, you're constantly looking for the best teacher who can teach you the best way to follow the law. That's what a Pharisee is doing. They're always looking for the next best teacher or looking to become the best teacher because when you find the right teacher, they will teach you the right way to follow the law and everything will fall into place which is a lot of how, how people live their lives all over the place. We are, we're constantly looking for the right steps to follow that will make my life work, right? All kinds of motivational speakers, all kinds of books are written about how to get your best life now, and you'll follow these steps. There's usually a certain, you know, there's a three or five or seven. They often all start with the same letter. And if you do these things, then you will be as prosperous or as wealthy or as happy as the person who makes their living selling this plan on how to do life best, right? <clears throat> we, we want that. That's what we're all looking for. And so when Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and says, hey, we, you are doing these signs that clearly must come from God. By the way, we means, that doesn't mean the ruling council. Nicodemus is probably the, the kind of the, a member of that group of people in Jerusalem who are starting to believe Jesus. But what it means for them to believe Jesus is that they see he's doing these signs and they believe those come from God. So he must be a good teacher. He must be a God-sent teacher. So what Nicodemus is doing here is essentially the same thing as we see in another story that the other gospels tell, where a certain ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In both cases, Nicodemus and this ruler, they come to Jesus looking for that list. You're a great teacher. You're going to be able to tell me what are the seven steps that I need to do to get my best life now. What do I need to do? What's the right way to follow the law so that I can get exactly what I'm looking for in this life? That's what he's saying when Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now how is that a response to what Nicodemus just said? 
Well, what he seems to be saying is, yeah, you think you understand what you saw, but you didn't. You think that you saw a great teacher who has proven that their interpretation of the law is right because they did some miracles. That's what you're looking for. You think that I'm the guy with the next best system to interpret the law to get your best life now. But you, won't, you can't understand this from the outside. You, you can't actually see what I'm offering. You can't actually get this until you're born again, until you're changed. What he's saying is you're talking about one kind of life, and I'm talking about a whole other kind of life. And you're not going to understand what I'm offering you in terms of what you're looking for. Basically, eternal life is not more or better of the life you already have. That tends to be what we're looking for, right? I know what I want out of this life. I just want more of it, or I want it better. So I want to know, I want to know the steps to achieve my goals more efficiently or more effectively. That's what I'm looking for. I want to know how to do my life better. And Jesus says, yeah, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to help you achieve your goals. I'm not here to help you get more of the life you are already living and already seeking. I'm here to bring you a different kind of life. When he says born again, that's a whole new transformation, right? That's being born into a new kind of life, a complete transformation. It's not just fiddling with, with the way, like, oh, you're, you're like 90% there. You just need to do this thing this way and, this is, and then it'll work. It's not like that. It's not modifying what you're doing. It's a complete rebirth, a complete change, a complete transformation. So eternal life is a different kind of life that requires a complete transformation. That's what it means to be born again. It means to start over something completely new. The $100 word is a qualitative change. Not quantity, but not a change in quantity, but a change in quality, a change in what it is. Nicodemus seems confused by this. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, it is possible that that Nicodemus is kind of dense, that he's not understanding that Jesus is using a metaphor. Personally, I don't think that that's likely. Rabbis use metaphors all the time. They use metaphors, they use parables, they loved imagery. I don't think that Nicodemus isn't really understanding what Jesus is saying. I think he's bringing up an an understandable objection using Jesus' metaphor. Because he says, how can I be born a second time? How can I start over again? Which is a fair question, because if you think about it, how can I start over again? How can I make myself born again? Like, you can't even grammatically say it. Bear myself again? Like, you can't, you have to be born Right? You can't do it yourself. You can give birth to another human being, but you can't bear yourself. That doesn't make sense. It's something that happens to you. And if you try to do it to yourself, like if, if I try to change myself, I'm not actually being born again. I'm just working, I'm just building on the foundation that's already there. Right? If I get a self-help book and start working on myself, I'm changing myself. I'm not starting over. I'm modifying a self that already exists. I'm tweaking things, I'm changing things, but I'm still there. How do I completely start over? 
I can no more completely start myself over than I can decide to go back into the womb and be born again. I didn't decide to be in the womb in the first place. That decision was made for me. And it's something that happened to me. So how, how can I possibly follow that instruction from Jesus? Because remember, Nicodemus is still looking for the list of things he needs to do. He wants the steps to follow. And Jesus says, okay, be born again. What? How do I follow that? How do I do that? What, what, how do I accomplish that thing? Jesus said, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, well, first of all, <clears throat> I, I think, here's, here's kind of how I hear that. Um, if Nicodemus is saying, look, that's I can't do that to myself. I can't bear myself. Like, that's true right? Flesh, your, your mom's flesh had to give birth to your flesh. That means someone's spirit, God's spirit, is going to have to give birth to your spirit. And it's not something you can control. It's not something you can even see. You can't see the wind. You know the wind is there, but you can't control it. It's something that happens to you. It happens around you. And that's the way it is to be born of the spirit. It's something that God's spirit has to do to you without your control Without you doing the steps, it is done to you. So eternal life is not something you can do or take. It has to be given to you by God. See, normal life is sustained by, by taking, right? By consuming. I live as long as I continue to consume. I eat food. I drink water. I breathe air. And as long as I continue to take those things, I will continue to live. And when I, the moment I stop taking those in, I start dying, right? And depending on which of those I stop, it takes a different amount of time. I can go longer without food than I can without air. But if I stop consuming, I'm, I begin the process of, ending, of not, no longer living, right? And so the nor, our normal mode of thinking is, okay, if I want eternal life, what do I have to take? What do I have to consume? What do I have to do? What actions do I perform to continue to make my life keep going? And Jesus says, that's not how eternal life works. It's given to you. You can't control it. You can't own it. You can't eat it. There's no pill. There's no elixir. It's given to you by the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? And this is an understandable question on a certain level because in Judaism of that time, there really is no mechanism for receiving the Spirit of God. They didn't have a sense that you could do this thing. And you, the Spirit of God came down at its own pleasure, and its own whim, and it usually just came down onto a leader to give them the ability to lead Israel for a while, and then it went back up. So there isn't a mechanism where you can, like, that just isn't a thing that was happening. He's how, what's going to happen to make this possible? How, how can I have access to the Spirit? That's, that's not a thing that happens. Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? The thing that Nicodemus was forgetting was that the Old Testament promised many times that the Spirit of God was coming, that something was going to happen so that in the end days, the Spirit of God would be poured out on his people. But Nicodemus has lost sight of this. He's mainly focused on the, the, the situation that the Israelites have been in up to this point. 
He's not really focused on the promises that are coming ahead. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He says, this is not something you're going to be able to understand that you could have figured out without me. You haven't been to heaven. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the ability to know what's, what is happening in God's plan. So you have to trust me when I tell you that this change is happening. And it's happening through the lifting up of the Son of Man. Now, he refers to a story in the Old Testament in which the people of Israel were grumbling against Moses again and grumbling against God. And so God sent venomous snakes to attack them. And Moses, then God told Moses to make a bronze snake, put it on a stick and lift it up. And anyone who looks at the snake would be spared from the, snake, from the real snakes. Okay? And he says, the same way that Moses had to lift up that snake and people had to look at those snakes, that snake in order to live, the same thing will happen with the Son of Man. And the Son of Man lift, being lifted up will be how, how eternal life is shared with God's people. Now, what does that mean? Well, knowing the end of the story, you can probably predict it, but John spells it out for us later on in chapter 12. Jesus says the same thing again. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John adds this line. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Being lifted up refers to the cross. And so as Jesus is lifted up, people can look to him and receive eternal life. How does that work? Well, this is a really cool thing that John does. If you look at the moment that Jesus dies, in the NIV it says in, in Luke 19, they give him Jesus um, some vinegar wine, and when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, in Matthew it says, gave up his spirit, and that's an accurate translation. Uh, gave, the word is gave up, surrendered, gave it back, um, Surrendered is, another, is a probably a, a good term for it. Like Jesus gave back his spirit because he was dying. But in John, he uses a different word. It, it doesn't mean give, gave up. It doesn't mean surrender. It means give over. Entrust. It means pass along your life and entrust it to someone else. You pass along his spirit. And it's interesting because in John, this happens right after he has a conversation with two of his disciples with uh, the beloved disciple and Mary. And then he dies and it says he gave away, he gave over his spirit. Which is interesting considering how much John has been talking about the sharing of eternal life. And it actually makes the most sense with the Old Testament sacrificial system. We've talked about this a couple of times, that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the important moment wasn't the moment when the animal died. There was no sense that the animal died, took on a punishment, that the animal was being punished. The important thing was that once you killed the animal, it gave you access to the blood. And in Leviticus, it says the life of the creature is in the blood. And then what was important in the sacrificial system was what you did with the blood. And so it wasn't that the animal died your death, but that the animal gave you its life. It had to die in order to share the blood so the blood could be used as liquid life, as kind of a detergent to wash away death. That's the symbolism that the sacrificial system gives us 
for the death of Jesus. And so then John says, when he died, he gave over his spirit. He shared his spirit. So what does that tell us about the nature of eternal life? It isn't just any life. Eternal life is the life Jesus shared with us through the cross. We share in Jesus' life. This is why, ultimately, it is only through Jesus that eternal life is possible, because only Jesus' life is eternal. Nobody else's life is eternal. Nobody else has anything to offer you that can outlast death, that can break the bonds of decay. Only Jesus' life is eternal. That's why he is the only way to eternal life. But the question, but I want to return to a question that we asked a couple of weeks ago, which was, why did he have to die in order to share his life with us? It wasn't just because of the sacrificial system, because God designed the sacrificial system too. So either way, God is responsible for this. And I think there's actually something very important that we see in the fact that Jesus had to die in order to give us his life. Okay? I want to go back to John chapter 12. This is the, the chapter at, at the beginning of Holy Week when Jesus said that he would draw everyone to himself when he's lifted up. Earlier in, that, uh, earlier in that chapter, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Notice this seed metaphor. In the ancient world, they they thought that a seed actually, you put it in the ground, you buried it, and that it died, and then the dead carcass of the seed then became something. And so that's the metaphor that Jesus is using. But what he's saying is that the, the life that he's giving to people has to come from somewhere, He has to give up his life in order to share it. Life is something that has to be shared. It doesn't just just happen, right? It has to be shared from somewhere. And so he is going to give his life over to people. He has to lose it. He has to give it away. It has to actually be shared in order to be the kind of life that lasts forever. And that's why he says then, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to share in that life, you have to do the same thing, right? He says... Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We have to follow that same pattern. Why? Because that is the nature of eternal life. Eternal life is not something you can hoard. It must be shared. Eternal life is the opposite of regular life. Regular life cannot be shared. It can only be hoarded. Right? I can't, I can't give a single one of you an extra day in your life. But I can hoard things to keep my life going longer, as long as fate doesn't intervene because it's not actually in my control. But I can try, right? I can try to hoard everything that I come across to make sure that I live as long as possible, but I can't add a day to anyone else's life. Eternal life works the opposite. It is not something that you can hoard. If you hoard it, it's not eternal life. If you hold on to it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't last. Eternal life is something that has to be shared. And this explains why Jesus says things that seem so harsh to people who want to follow him. Remember that ruler that we talked about that came up to Jesus and asked the same question as Nicodemus. 
Jesus told him, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What is he saying? Reverse the flow of your life. Your life has been flowing into you. Your life has been all about accumulating for yourself. But eternal life has to be shared. It has to be passed along. So you're going to have to reverse the flow. Life is going to have to flow out of you. Because the measure of eternal life is not whether you're taking things in, but whether you're sharing, whether you're passing along what Jesus has given you. This is what it meant to follow Jesus, right? For example, when Jesus went to, the tax collect, to Levi, uh, the tax collector sitting in his booth, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi, whose entire life had been dedicated to getting as much wealth into himself as possible, reversed the flow of his life, left everything and followed Jesus. Jesus said to the crowds that followed him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Does that sound familiar? What he said in John, right? Now that is not telling you to adopt a martyr complex. That's not telling you that you have to go out and find some way for your life to be ended. Okay? He doesn't mean just dying like your physical death. What he means is that when you reverse the flow of your life, your normal life considers that death, right? As soon as you start taking in, as soon as you stop taking in and consuming, your life, your regular life considers that the beginning of death. And so you're going to have to go through something that your, your flesh considers tantamount to death. Because you're reversing the flow of your, you are reversing the flow of your life. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is pretty extreme language in order to get the point across. That you cannot hold on to the kind of life that decays and dies while you're seeking eternal life. So much so that when, when Paul talks about this, Paul does not use born-again terminology. In fact, born-again is a phrase used only once in the Bible. What's used a lot more often is death terminology. But nobody, nobody says, goes around saying, I'm an undead Christian, right? We say born-again because it sounds better. We don't talk about dead and reborn. Like, but the, uh, Paul will say it this way. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. Then you will also appear with him in glory. What Paul and Jesus are both saying is that the kind of life that actually is eternal that actually gets us through this life is not a life that is focused on getting and holding enough to get me through. If you feel like you cannot accumulate, you cannot hold on to enough resources of whatever kind to get you through, if you feel overwhelmed and feel like you don't have enough to get through it, you are right. That is the most accurate mentality you have. When you think you have enough to get through, that's the illusion. We cannot take enough, we cannot own enough, we cannot consume enough to get the kind of life that we ultimately really want, that will ultimately really fulfill us. 
Jesus is not being harsh. Jesus is not saying that your life or your goals don't matter. What he's saying is the only way to get the kind of life that truly lasts forever, that is truly eternal, is to receive life from me and to share it with others. The only thing that will really sustain you. Now, in this conversation, we planted seeds for each of the future conversations that we're going to be looking at in John. We'll be bringing back up themes. So there's a lot that came up here, and the point isn't for you to go home with all of it already figured out. I don't even have all of it already figured out, but here's where I want us to land for today. Here's what I want you to take home with you and I want you to chew on. Okay? First of all, I want you to understand Jesus came to give us eternal life. And among other things, I would say that means the kind of life that, fu- that truly fulfills and sustains. If you're going through life feeling overwhelmed, Jesus did come to speak to that feeling in that sense. He came to give you rest. He came to give you comfort. Jesus called the weary to come to him. Right? He sees you and he hears you. The thing about Jesus is Jesus does not offer placebos. Jesus does not offer stopgaps, shortcuts, anything other than the real solution. He wants to give you the life that truly endures. And that's why he's going to ask something of you. He's going to ask you to adopt an entirely different kind of life because the kind of life that we default into does not endure. Eternal life does not come through consuming. It comes through sharing. Now, I'm going to give you an example in my own life recently. This has been a heck of a year for me. There's a ton going on. Um, In the past nine months, um, we've had a birth of a third child. We've had two ER visits. We've had a death in the family. And uh, my wife and I are both presidents of the convention next door that happens in June. And uh, it's just been, it has been a chaotic year. And before anything happened with my brother, we had arranged for a retreat that we were going to take in sisters at this ranch that they do retreats for pastors. Casey's parents came in, and they watched the kids. First time we have been without kids for two nights in a row in four years. And I had high hopes for this, because this is my mentality, right? That if I can get time alone, if I can consume enough time in sleep or distraction or good food or just not being responsible for small humans, like if I can get enough for myself, I will be restored and replenished and recharged, and I will come back and things will be better. Now, I'm not about to say that you shouldn't go on retreats, that you shouldn't spend time for yourself. Jesus spent time for yourself. Spent time for himself. I'm convinced Jesus was an introvert. There is good health in taking time for yourself, but there is not eternal life in taking time for yourself. Because what happened was I came home and nothing had gotten better when I got back. The world was still waiting for me, right? And what I actually felt like the instant I got back was, well, all I did was lose some days of work. I lost some days when I could have been working on my goals and the things ahead of me. And, I, and for a moment there, it felt like it was all a waste. Now, I don't ultimately think it was all a waste, but, but that's because I stopped judging it by what I was able to consume in that time, by what I was able to get into myself. What I've learned, and I have to keep reminding myself and relearning, is that what truly sustains me and gets me through is not getting away from real life and real relationships, it's getting plugged into them. 
is getting plugged into Christ, is getting plugged into my church, is getting plugged into my family. It's finding healthy connections with my kids. When I came home, what, the way I actually found balance was I set uh, a, a, uh, some disciplines for myself. I'm going to go to bed at 9 p.m., which I struggle with. Anybody heard of, uh, I think it's called, they have a term for everything now, um, revenge procrastination. Parents, you may know about this. If you don't, you do it. Uh, basically, when, you're, when your time isn't controlled by yourself, it's the idea that you, take, like, you stay up late just so you can have time for yourself. You don't, you don't do anything useful with it. But like my, when my kids go to sleep, I'm going to take at least two hours to do whatever I want, regardless of what time those hours start at, regardless of whether there's anything useful I can do in that time, because I want time for me, Right? And what that ends up doing is it makes me stay up too late and then I'm a mess the next day. And I didn't actually, like, consuming those two hours didn't help me, right? It didn't give me life. It actually just wasted a couple of hours doing nothing. Um, And what I found is that actually what I need to do in order to find true, sustainable, fulfilled life is to be connected with my wife and my kids, to be in healthy routines, to be connected with my church family, and to be spending time with God. It's not about pulling into myself and reserving things for myself that truly will sustain me. It's being connected into God and being connected into his people. And so the only way to find eternal life is to receive and follow the life of Jesus. Notice those two things, to receive the life of Jesus because his life is the only one that lasts forever. You cannot get eternal life anywhere, any other place. And that's not a way of putting down anyone else, but simply to say Jesus is one of a kind, and he did a one of a kind thing. And he has a one of a kind life to share. But you cannot receive his life without receiving his life, right? It's not, his life doesn't turn into more of your life when you get it. That means that, following him, that receiving his life means we have to follow him. We have to be people like him. We have to live lives that resemble the one who gave his life away on the cross. Not because we're supposed to be martyrs and we're supposed to be suffering all the time, but because that's what true eternal life is. It's what we're going to do in heaven. And In heaven, we're not going to be receiving all the joys we've always wanted in life. We're going to be full of joy because everyone is connected with everybody else and giving to everybody else, and it flows through everyone. Right? That's what's coming for us. The idea of a heaven where all of my appetites are fulfilled, that's not heaven. In Christian categories, that's hell. That's being dominated by your appetites. That's being controlled by your desires. Heaven is when we are not controlled by our desires, but we're controlled, we're dominated by our love for others and for God. So ultimately, that is the only kind of life that will truly sustain you. I'm trying to learn how to practice that. And my hope is that we as a congregation can learn how to practice that well because it is out of that eternal life of Jesus that we will actually be able to love our neighbors. Because you will not be able to have enough to feel like I'm I'm arrived, now I can give to others. Because if we Americans in the 21st century do not have enough to share with others to follow the commands of Jesus, then nobody does, right? No matter where you are in American society, you have access to more resources than 90% of human beings who ever have existed or exist now. If we can't do it, if we can't follow the way of Jesus, if we don't have enough, then nobody can. But it turns out that following Jesus isn't a matter of what I have. It's a matter of what I receive from Jesus 
and share with others. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you offer us eternal life, a life that is of a different kind than the one that we live now. Father, we, if we're honest, we, we still constantly want more and better of our current life, of our normal life. And Father, I want to thank you for not giving in to that demand. I know how hard it is to resist the constant demands of children. And you resist our demands for something that is not good for us, and you offer us only what we truly need, which is eternal life, the kind of life your son led and offers to us now. I pray that you would give us eyes to see eternal life around us, to see the ways we can be filled by you and filled by community with your people and the ways we can give to others around us. Instead of trying to be perfect and full before we love others, give us eyes to see the opportunities we have to love others while we are being filled, while we are receiving from you. Father, we thank you for your son and the sacrifice that he made on the cross to give us his life. And we pray you would make us into good and faithful stewards of the life he has given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turner Christian Church, we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus is someone who is connected with God in his church, who grows in faith and love.